can I ask one quick question before we go into the reading today? Absolutely. Um, about anti-production. I said no. I mean, Jesus. I mean, Jesus, Misha. What do you think we're here for? <laughs> to explain things? <laughs> so I, I much prefer to have a podcast where I get to not interact with people, talk outwardly, and then not be questioned, and then react poorly when I am. Yes, I get it. That sounds like anti-production, Brooks. It's a, it's a, it does sound like it, doesn't it? Um, but that's also related to my question. I was just, I'm, I'm sometimes a little bit confused with that term. But is it correct that anti-production is mostly referring to the restrictions put on desiring production? Like the, the borders? No, anti-production is a completely oh. different thing than what you're talking about. Oh, sorry. Okay. No, okay, it's that, a, don't, don't be sorry. It genuinely one of the more complicated fucking things overall when it comes to this book is the very concept you're talking about. Um, so think of anti-production not as like antimatter or a constraining factor. Uh, anti-production is production itself also like uh, expenditure of resources that is done that doesn't support production in any way or is there to service the socius purely. Uh, an example would be uh, the military industrial complex. It's the one Deleuze and Guattari use regularly. Um, there is no productive reality to the economy to having such a thing. It doesn't actually help. It's pure expenditure. Going to war and blowing things up doesn't grow. It's an expenditure of capital that is only that bomb. Uh, there, there is no capital growth. So it is, it is purely sort of blowing out that side. Anti-production is that. Um, in the different socii, they kind of take different forms. In the, the primitive, for example, anti-production is feasts uh, that you may have. Uh, potlatch, for example, is one that they even use as an example of kind of like this uh, mass expenditure of excess value that everyone has, so that way it doesn't pile up. Uh, anti-production is kind of there for that reason is is my read of it and uh, i believe holland's as well very again very complicated yeah that sounds uh, a little bit confusing because i can think of many things that are that and then i'm wondering what the other side is like what, what so what's so what is so what does production do that anti-production doesn't do all right so let's think of it this way um the how to put it god damn there's so much that we could discuss here there's so much we could discuss here Dis anti-production causes disconnections uh, interruptions and in flows breaks uh, it's its purpose is that of the bwo purpose is that of supporting the bwo um to to read a little bit from uh, a couple pieces uh, because we have a a few moments. I don't mind doing this for a second because this is a—it's a good conversation to kind of uh, have, especially with what we're going to be going into uh, with a lot of this. Uh, to read from Holland, more significantly, the infant may pull away from the breast for other reasons without any ultimate physiological satisfaction having been achieved. Perhaps a smile caught its eye. It suspends the mouth-breast connection to pursue the eye-face connection instead. And then maybe it looks away, brings a finger into connection with a lock of hair. 
In each case, the disjunctive energy of anti-production functions to suspend one organ-machine connection, but only for the sake of another, in an open-ended series. Uh, anti-production, again, not like antimatter as a negative, not as lack, but as its own element that sort of plays in this space. Um, ah, this makes more sense to me. Yeah, it's like a um, switch. It it is um, like a like a like a cut. Let, let me so that's uh, because we're talking about different regimes how it operates uh, within social production a little different anti production to read plays a central role in organizing social production on the socius, just as it does with desiring production on the BWO. Indeed, like the term desiring machines, the concept of anti-production provides for schizoanalysis a crucial link between the realms of desiring production and social production. As we saw, anti-production on the BWO designates what Freud and Lacan called primal repression, the advent of a process of recording in the human psyche involving repetition, memory, representation, formation of the unconscious. In the realm of desiring production, considered in and of itself, abstractly, the recording process is ambivalent. The forces of anti-production free desiring production from strict instinctual determinism by suspending organ-machine connections. But they also make it susceptible to capture in systems of representation. As we saw in chapter two, we can now add this. It is consideration of the relations of social production and anti-production that enables us to evaluate the results of a recording process in as much as these relate relations generate the systems of representation that capture and tie desire to the socius in the institution of social organization. Uh, to the familiar Marxist dualisms then, schizoanalysis adds extra terms. The dialectic of forces and relations of productions becomes the interplay of forces and relations of production and forces and relations of anti-production. The alternative between the sphere of production or the sphere of reproduction broadens to include a sphere of anti-production. Finally, anti-production as the organization of matter and energy flows on the socius provides a crucial corrective to what Deleuze and Guattari call the exchangeism of Levi Strauss. In fact, the concept of the socius provides a materialist basis for what Levi Strauss called the symbolic order, that is, for the codes and the systems of inscriptions that organize desire socially in the different modes of social production. Levi Strauss showed kinship terminology and myths organize desire, la 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 la. Social coding on the socius for Deleuze and Guattari organizes bodies, practices, and objects, as well as symbols and words. But for the founder of structuralism, social exchange is ultimately everywhere the same and amounts to systems of exchange. For Deleuze and Guattari, contrast, as chapter three of Antioedipus is meant to show, social organization is not everywhere the same. Forms of coding and systems of inscription differ significantly among three ideal types of social production they analyze, in part because desire gets organized or inscribed on the type of socius specific to each mode of social production, earth, despot, capital. Does that help at all? Yes, but it's a lot to take in. So. Oh, I'm uh, sure. Like, I, oh. like it's a, it's huge. I just figured I'd read. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. It's really helpful, but uh, I am also out of questions now. What <laughs> were you reading from? What uh, were Holland, you reading? Eugene oh. Holland's uh, introduction to schizoanalysis, mm. which is his his sort of uh, secondary text on AO. I, I think it's a phenomenal interpretation of it personally. 
Okay, well, uh, then I'll kick us off where I didn't know where we were. I thought we were further along. Um, I've been doing too many rereadings of the sections we're about to do, so that's just the way it goes. Um, God. All right, uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, hello and thank you all for welcoming and joining us at the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. Today, apparently, we're moving into 4.3. I didn't uh, quite realize we were only starting it. I felt like, why did I feel like we were further in? That's fine. We do have a text chat and a thread inside of the live chat. Look for Anti-Oedipus and you can join us and uh, type away if you want. Otherwise, uh, I suppose. Here we go. The schizoanalytic argument is simple. Desire is a machine, a synthesis of machines, a machinic arrangement, desiring machines. The order of desire is the order of production. All production is at once desiring production and social production. We therefore reproach psychoanalysis for having stifled this order of production, for having shunted it into representation. Far from showing the boldness of psychoanalysis, this idea of unconscious representation marks from its outset its bankruptcy or its abnegation. An unconscious that no longer produces, but is content to believe. The unconscious believes in Oedipus, it believes in castration, in the law. It is doubtless true that the psychoanalyst would be the first to say that, everything considered, belief is not an act of the unconscious. It is always the pre-conscious that believes. Shouldn't it even be said that it is the psychoanalyst who believes, the psychoanalyst in each of us? Would belief then be an effect of the conscious material that the unconscious representation exerts from a distance? But inversely, who or what reduced the unconscious to the state of representation if not, first of all, a belief system of beliefs put in place of productions? In reality, social production becomes alienated in allegedly autonomous beliefs at the same time that desiring production becomes enticed into allegedly unconscious representations. And as we have seen, it is the same agency, the family, that performs this double operation, distorting and disfiguring social desiring production, leading it into an impasse. Fairly crisp paragraph that starts with their uh, continuing critique of representation, but they actually, to me, lay it out clearly, possibly for the first time, that they are actively, simply going hard right at representation through much of this. Um, some of the lines in here are great, Ed. The unconscious that no longer produces but is content to believe such a, a it's a strong line that hits me uh please uh comments questions uh anything anything about this one yes i had one question um because i think the main point is very clear to me but in one of the earlier sentences uh, they say the order of desire is order of production. All production is at once, desiring production and social production. But maybe I just completely misunderstood social production from before, but I thought that desiring production did not at all uh, necessitate social production. Um, go ahead, Jack. We can talk about social production and we're talking about the socius and what's going on there, right? But there's also the limit of that social production, which is the BWO, right? Well, 
the absolute and the relative limit, the absolute limit being the BWO. So if that's the limit of social production, right, then by necessity, we're broaching desiring production. So what you end up having is something along the lines of the two working upon one another. They go into this kind of elsewhere where they talk about the molar sort of enveloping the molecular, but at the same time, the molecular is churning what the molar will be, right? The two have a reflexive relationship and they're, you know, it's also very reciprocal. So when they say like, it's funny to see them using the word arrangement here, machinic arrangement before they get into assemblage, but when you have an arrangement of desiring machines, so too are you pointing toward a, an arrangement of social machines, right? And vice versa. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense then. Um, just how you just described it also made me think, is it fair to say that, um, or is it similar to how um, her her hermeneutics uh, go about um, I, systemically? I would lean toward no, because um, I mean, you have to be very careful how you're going to qualify hermeneutics, but if we mean something like um, and this is where representation comes in, right? Any hermeneutics that is going to be tied to representation, so this is the basic critique of psychoanalysis, right? Is that they're basically taking, they're going to look at everything through a belief in Oedipus, which is what they're going through here, as though that which is, is that which is through the condition of Oedipus, right? And this is kind of their point, is that you're not getting at things on their own terms from a hermeneutical standpoint, right? You're you're accessing um, you're, you're accessing the ontological through Oedipus, right, through a representation, and what that does, which is I think one of the coolest things about this paragraph, right? So what happens when you access things through um, representation, or what does representation do to things at an ontological level on their own terms? They write, in reality, social production becomes alienated and allegedly autonomous beliefs. At the same time, that desiring production becomes enticed into allegedly unconscious representations. So you have at one hand, right, social production being alienated by, you know, by representation, right, which is very interesting. And then on the other hand, you have desiring production being kind of presented um, sort of a norm, right, sort of like what it should be doing. They'll talk about desiring production, seeing itself in a mirror and this kind of like styming that happens, you know, so this is kind of what happens when you, you know, on one hand, when you access things through representation, but also what does that representation do, um, you know, at an ontological level? How does it affect social and desiring production, even when psychoanalysts aren't um, actively using it? So I have a, I have a slightly different interpretation, um, or maybe I don't, and I'm just, um, you know, again, words. Um, uh, for me, it's it's they're talking about it basically in the sense of the two regimes in the same way that right now, as I'm talking and I'm experiencing this, me Brooks as a person, I'm making memories. There's memories being made right now. I'm remembering this setup. For each of you, this is actively true as well. For any one of us, we are memory producing uh, at at a personal level. But at the same time, at large, if we were to just look at how we all will describe this moment tomorrow, perhaps, if we all had to write a book about it. There is a social memory that's being created, or even at the global scale, 
the same thing. My individual sort of instantiation of production uh, and the larger social are regimes that operate uh, slightly differently, but ultimately they are one producing the other, but one doing so in the large numbers because we're talking about the two regimes in the same way desiring production, the single desiring machine that is firing and connecting that single connection as it fires and produces desire and desire starts flowing and other connections happen and all of this. It's not that from one comes many, that's from billions comes one almost because we have billions of desiring machines that are all firing out and they're very complex that that's desiring production. But ultimately at the social level, they all start playing uh, together to make the socius, to make the, the singular sort of here is the larger social production that is happening or any element thereof. Uh, no, not from many comes many. I don't, I don't, I, I'm talking about more the production of the social machines. It's a, the way that we, we play, uh, maybe many comes many, it doesn't matter. My, more my point is we're talking about the two regimes that are firing simultaneously, but uh, because of that, we may call them different regimes, but it is one production. Production is both of those. One necess necessitates the other and vice versa. Because they're the same process, ultimately. Yeah, I have a question. Please. So uh, he's just opposing... Um schizoanalysis to uh, psychoanalysis and under schizoanalysis there are these, these orders of desire and orders of production oh, hold on Sorry, you're, your mic you're, cutting cu out. you're cutting out so desiring production and uh, social production are they the primordial uh, you know uh, foundation of um, of you know what is normal or natural you know, desire, and um, and that um, <clears throat> psychoanalysis comes in and misrepresents rather than represents. It actually misrepresents it, or you know, he, he uses the word representation, but it compromises that kind of natural kind of uh, desire and production and social production. It it traps it. Uh, so d d desiring machines don't have any conception of the things we're talking about or representation. They don't get it. They. They're blind to it. They operate at a different level. As they start being combined and put together, here we sit and we go, oh, that, that's love. Oh, that's, that's incest. Oh, that's this. That's, we, we start naming it. And as we name it, desiring machines still, no clue. They don't give a shit. They're just going. They just connect. But as we start putting them inside of these representations, we start hitting that first paralogism we start, well, all the paralogisms ultimately, and we start shifting how our own subjectivity is produced in the process. That's the critique that they have. It shunts all of that. Psychoanalysis takes all of these different things that are fairly contingent, unique moments through each of our existences, but tries to create a sort of hypernormative singular representation that they can name everything so we can believe thing instead of just being wherever we're at, supposedly. Maybe a terrible way to phrase it. Right, right. From a from a different angle, if you go all the way back to one point one, they're very they're very concerned, I think, to not be saying that this is the natural way things are and then get into the problem of this is the social way things are. And they're gonna take pains very early on to say, 
we are not recognizing a natural social distinction. So as to say, there's desire in a natural state, and then there's desire in a social state. Rather, the move they're going to make is anything that could be considered natural and or social is contingent on a process of production, which is desire, right? So as to have anything that could be called natural and or social, it has to go through, a, it has to have been produced itself. Right, so you won't be able to relegate one to you won't be able to relegate desire to a natural or social state. Instead, you'll have things kind of in a in an and kind of an interstice of the two, right? Because the social and the natural can only follow production; it can't precede it. But they are saying that the schizoid analysis is the more um, perhaps the more authentic or the more you know, um, yeah. Primordial? It, it's a more appropriate methodology. So like if we go to the hermeneutic question, one could perhaps argue that schizoanalysis is a hermeneutic method, but the qualification is extremely important there because it's going to be, I mean, this is like the thing with um, with glossmatics. Okay, Brits didn't correct me. With glossmatics, right, is that at that level, right, instead of trying to look for something kind of um, above uh, above the ontological, right, above what's there, in a manner of speaking, Glassmatz is going to look for the imminent conditions. And that's the point that um, differentiates psychoanalysis and schizoanalysis. Is. Schizoanalysis is going at the imminent conditions of production. Psychoanalysis risks accessing production through representation and thereby misrepresenting desire, mm. right? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Mistakes, desire. It it goes to as they phrase here, and I really like it. Um, it's an it it pushes you to have an unconscious that no longer produces, but is content to believe. Um, and they they're saying that deeply, sardonically, and angry at the term believe. Like they're they don't like this. It we don't want someone who believes. We want production. We want connection. We want at an ontological level, people connecting and putting things together, doing their thing, rather than trying to fit into a representational uh, configuration or constellation to define what they ought to be doing or that starts, you know, fucking their, their entire <laughs> desiring production process up. It's based on these beliefs that, um, that compromises the, um, you know, the um, desire production and social production from the schizoid analysis point of view, right? Could you say that one more time? I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing your eye quality. Yeah, in other words, the, uh, you know, it is it is this kind of uh, belief, the unconscious beliefs in Oedipus. Oedipus seems to be, uh, represent the the, um, the despotic or the, um, you know, the um, hierarchical structure of, uh, of a despotic order, right? And it's a kind of a belief that is uh, is able to be exploited uh, by, uh, by, the, by the socius of a of the capitalist order, right? That that inter that interacts with a capitalist order in a very particular way that is exploitative. Yeah, it's. Um, I I think I would, if I had to kind of channel, I think they would say, uh, Oedipus itself isn't necessarily like itself hierarchical or bad. It, it, there's an Oedipus complex. These things ex like exist. There's a virtual version of all of these that are. Uh, what's the joke? Uh, actual but not real. Virtual but yeah, whatever it is. But it's these things exist, but they're not necessarily 
uh, itself damaging or bad. It's a matter of how they fit into these larger social pictures and how they're utilized. Good capital as a system, thanks to how it axiomatizes people and how it pushes people in specific directions and creates the rules around things, it's ripe for Oedipus to basically become the the setup for us. It's why we're married to the idea of the law as the father or whatever it may be. It's why this triangle works because within social, within uh, the socius, within capital, this setup trains us perfectly for it to kind of continue to produce itself. Uh, so it works nicely. It's one of the reasons we didn't have a Oedipus as a thing uh, didn't exist in primitive, didn't exist in the despotic because there are pieces missing. There's, there was, and people were fucking their mothers. People were doing these things and they're killing their fathers, all of this. Sure. But until capital, we didn't get to what we have as modern Oedipus, where it's actually a representation of desire and, and sort of malforming it in the way that it is because of how the socius functions. If that makes sense. I think I said, I think I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll say yes there and stop. No, I, I think you're spot on because it, you have to understand, like you're saying, that Oedipus changes both in its placement and representation and its yeah. usage for the for the socius, right? Because you don't want to, I think, I don't think it's about getting at Oedipus as despotic. I think it's about what Oedipus does in each socius, right? For each socius. Because you can find it in the primitive but it's a minor part of representation. It's one of three pieces. It's not the full story. And it won't be until you get to something like capital, where the states have changed altogether, right? Where, where kinship has changed altogether. Right now we're talking about the kinship of capital versus like, um, you know, bodies and or at least with the despot, you know, there's, there's something a little bit. Well, I actually right there. And and with JK's question, I think I'm going to move to the next paragraph because I think it's discussing this. Uh, this this entire section is very much discussing uh, exactly what we're talking about here. So it's perfect. Uh, I always love when discussion naturally dovetails to the next paragraph. Uh, but I'll continue. Thus, the link between representation belief and the family is not accidental. It is of the essence of representation to be a familial representation. But production is not thereby suppressed. It continues to rumble, to throb beneath the representative agency, instance representative, that suffocates it, and that, in return, it can make resonant to... Uh, sorry, I'm going to re-say that. But production is not thereby suppressed. It continues to rumble, to throb beneath the representative agency that suffocates it, and that it, in return, can make resonate to the breaking point. Thus, in order to keep an effective grip of, on the zones of production, representation must inflate itself with all the power of myth and tragedy. It must give a mythic and tragic presentation of the family and a familial presentation of myth and tragedy. Yet, aren't myth and tragedy too productions, forms of production? Certainly not. They are production only when brought into connection with real social production, real desiring production. Otherwise, they are ideological forms which have taken the place of the units of production. Who believes in all this? Oedipus, castration, etc. The Greeks? Then the Greeks did not produce in the same way they believed? The Hellenists? 
do the Hellenists believe that the Greeks produced according to their beliefs? This is true, at least, of the 19th century Hellenists, about whom Ingalls said, you'd think they really believed in all that, in myth, in tragedy. Is it the unconscious that represents itself through Oedipus and castration? Or is it the psychoanalyst? The psychoanalyst in us all, who represents the unconscious in this way. For never has Ingalls' remark regained so much meaning. You'd think the psychoanalysis really believed in all this, in myth, in tragedy. They go on believing, whereas the Hellenists have long since stopped. I leave it open. It's a fantastic paragraph. Yeah, I do really like the paragraph, but I also have a question. Um, of course. And it is sort of twofold, but it's about the same thing. Mm. Um, and it's about the sentence, certainly not. They are production only when brought into connection with real social production and real desiring production. Um, my two questions are um, basically what they mean with the real here uh, is the first part. But maybe that's also the answer to the question if like tragedy as in theater production is not real production. Like are they supposing that theater production is not real production? Myth and tragedy as in literature and theater. Right, right. Um, yeah. Please, Jack, go ahead. I mean, I, so, I mean, you got to think about like how they use Proust and that, right? I don't think they're going after um, literature directly, but it's, it's exactly what we were just talking about in the previous paragraph, right? Which is, so these representations, right? Let's talk a little bit more about what they are, because there's an ontology there too, right? And at, at that level, they go back to this point about psychoanalysis, which is, basically right that psychoanalysis uses the theater and sets the unconscious upon the stage right so there's a this kind of goes back to your question about hermeneutics how does psychoanalysis access the unconscious through a representation that representation uses myth and tragedy in such a way that we have to understand that that use of myth and tragedy um, specific to that context right because under that form we're playing with, you know, its use um, qua representation. Now that's different than myth and tragedy, particularly myth, where I would prefer to focus for a moment as a form of production, as we saw in, I want to say it's three 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 two, where they go through um, the Dagon myth and how that is itself basically like, you know, a series of us. Um, a series of arrangements, right? It's they're constantly pointing at. Here's the second synthesis. Here's the creation of social memory. Here's the third synthesis. You know, there's a way in which that myth is actually part of a, a form of production for the Dagon, as opposed to, you know, something that the unconscious is supposed to believe in, and therefore, right, it, the unconscious can be represented on those terms. So when they say real, you know, that's I think that's more or less what they mean is that it goes back basically to methodology, right? Is there's a way in which myth is a process of production, right? And we can see that in the Dagon myth and social production there. Um, but there's also a way in which myth can be used to represent production. 
And at that point, we're no longer talking about production on its own terms. We're no longer talking about feeling conscious on its own terms. We're talking about the stage that we suppose the unconscious produces upon because it believes in that stage, right? To go right back to that point about belief. Okay, I, I, I think I think I get it and also it completely resonates then where like, of course, tragedy and myth are real in their own, like in their own form, but just not as something else. Mm. As in, uh, tragedy is a is real production as tragedy, but not as a representation of uh, how the brain works. I, I, I think it might actually be a little simpler. Um, the 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 question here, as it's phrased, is whether or not, to me, as I read it, whether or not myth and tragedy produce. That's the question because it's it's common very common in a lot of circles uh, that we talk about how uh, a myth, a story, an element produces lack, produces success, produces desire. Uh, Lacan, uh, I believe part of this is kind of aimed at him and the way he, he talks about how things produce. Uh, to me, the line here is, aren't these also production or forms of? It's like, no, no, they're not. They don't produce on their own. They are disconnected until they are connected and then and only then when they're brought into connection with actual desiring production and part of that process then they are a machine that produces in a social machine but they don't produce on their own that is i think the point that they're talking about here that these things aren't a fount of creation they are a quasi cause of production but actually desiring production is underneath that uh, when they when they actually produce. Yeah, I totally get that. But I also have a really difficult time seeing something like tragedy disconnected from production in practicality. As, right. Unless, yeah, just yeah. Right. Um, but you gotta be, you gotta be careful how you're taking tragedy and myth because, like, if you mean like a literary book, a literary work, right? You're back to taking it as a machine versus taking that literary work so as to represent machines. So if you think about Freud, right, there's a way in which we can talk about, and just class it psychoanalysis, there's a way in which we can talk about the unconscious as constantly appealing to Oedipus or some representation, so that if we understand like the Oedipal thing, we're understanding the unconscious because it represents the unconscious. So in the I would same even... way, right? Oh, good. No, I would even add... Uh... A, a literary work on its own, a myth, a tragic representation, a story, anything, does not produce itself. It is not a fount. It, the book Lolita doesn't produce feelings. It is my, me as a subject, the desiring machines that produce me, connecting with that and the larger social strata and all of the desiring machines there that produce within that. Uh, it is a machine a series of machines, but it doesn't produce itself. It's, it doesn't have desiring machines in the same way that they kind of exist overall. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a source. Uh, it's very commonly thought in a lot of very representational ways of looking at the world that representations are things that produce, that they are a fount, a source, uh, 
an asset that themselves create. This is how capital works as a very, this is just capital. This is the same critique of representation of how capital operates. Capital doesn't make capital. Capital doesn't make money. Capital doesn't make businesses. Capital doesn't make wealth. But 100% people talk about it as though it does. 100% across the board. The same thing here is being said, and we're talking through it, and we will get to capital. But they're saying this is true of myths and tragic representations of the family, or even anything like that. They they are not forms of production. They are production only when brought into connection. Otherwise, they're a dead machine without desire flowing through. Yeah, could you think of them as uh, just a part of the uh, belief system? When you talked about beliefs, um, they're not. Uh, they don't. Um, they're 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 not real because they're 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 a separate, um, you know, uh, system of beliefs, right? Well, it's, it's the, the way I would phrase it is to continue off this. They're not real on their own representation. Again, people commonly think or talk about these things as if on their own, these things are instantiated and are a source or a fount or an operating machine. And it's like, no, they, they, they are real and connected. When Brooke says, I believe a thing, or I'm reading a book and it moved me. This is not taking that away. I felt what I did. I have the affect I did. I have the experience I did. But it's saying, actually, that's not from the book to Brooks. It's not even from Brooks to the book, but it's the interaction of all the desiring machines through all the machines that are part of that book that produce that final bit, that the book on its own doesn't produce as a thing. Exactly. That's why he calls it um, ideological forms. Uh, it is. It's a great phrase for that, yeah. And so he's, he's arguing that the, you know, the Hellenists, uh, you know, the um, you know, had those, uh, created those myths, myths and tragedies, uh, but they didn't, you know, they were able to give it up, give it up, you know. Um, they didn't continue with believing in those. Well, and there's a, it's a, there's a great sort of underlying sarcasm here. We had this discussion last time, and I really like this bit because my, my, my question, and I would love to be able to ask them, and I haven't gotten a full satisfying answer, is this their way of sort of mocking all of this in the sense of like, hey, Actually, no one really believes this. Like there's, uh, there, there is, <laughs> so when someone's first introduced to psychoanalysis, I'm going to give you a personal story. First introduced to psychoanalysis and we someone talks you through it and teaches you, I was young, it's been a few years, but teaches you about the phallus and uh, about Oedipus and about how represent, and immediately your first reaction is like, well, you don't mean literally, like you don't really believe this. No, 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 but here's how it works. And here's kind of how these things, well, you don't actually believe, no, not really, but sort of, and it becomes this, like, who really believes in all of this shit? <laughs> like who really believes it and who's actually really connected to these things. And that's the, the th sort of line as they go through it that I like where they, uh, with the line from Engels, uh, you'd think they'd really believed in all that in the myth and the tragedy because they, they don't really, but they sort of do. And so it's this really weird place of, uh, what do they actually believe in terms of connect to produce and actually flow through? Uh, it's, I, I really like that line. Right. Because the point is to get at if this stuff doesn't actually, so if Oedipus isn't actually how the unconscious produces itself, right? If the representation is not actually the unconscious, what does it do? Well, we know what it does, right? Because it alienates social production and it 
entices desiring production, right? Kind of like trying to, it's sort of a point about like, it's a point about a norm, right? That the unconscious um, should produce in this manner, which is how it affects unconscious production at, at the micro level, or I'm sorry, at the uh, molecular level. And there's a, a great uh, sort of example I gave last time, because um, I like to try to find pop culture sort of examples. Um, if anyone here likes Stargate, I love Stargate. Not an uncommon sci-fi trope to be able to have uh, an entire race. They had the ancients. All of their tech, all of their cities, all of their information, all of their weapons, whatever it may be, was literally powered by the energy that came from them. And they were sort of an evolved human. And the, the idea was that everything literally was just simply dead machines until someone came along and held it and introduced their energy into it. And so it kind of gave everything a very unique flavor. It's a really cool world, really fun stuff. This is not far from how we're talking about stuff here. The, the machines exist as they do, but they don't produce. Desire flows through them. And when that happens, there is production happening in concert with them. Uh, but they are ideological forms. They've just taken the place of universe production, fooled us into thinking that they actually produce desire or produce lack or produce these other things when they don't. Desiring machines are the thing that do it at the very base level. I also really like Stargate. I don't care what anyone says. Very underrated show. Yeah, maybe I, I can. I don't want to. Uh, so maybe we can move on. But there is really something here to me that I feel like um, I'm not sure if I can fully get behind. Because, again, like I cannot see the myth and the tragedy. Um, I cannot see them disconnected from their uh, material or something. And I feel like, you know, like um, the light of a projector traveling to the screen is also some form of production in, in, in my, in how I see, but maybe. A form of production, yes. Desiring production, no. So I'm using the Dagon example because that's where they're talking about myth as a process of production, as myth actually doing something, right? The thing I, I see them pushing back on is like the tendencies to something like Hamlet, right? I mean, in psychoanalysis, it's almost always Oedipus or Hamlet, right? Um, that by understanding the story of Hamlet, you have thereby understood the unconscious. And so by appealing to the story of Hamlet, you're going to be at the same time talking about the unconscious. So much so that like, if we go back to my favorite example in the story, in the book is um, Melanie Klein with, uh, with um, her patient Dick. And she has him use all these trains and he's making these connections, right? Um, or rather connections are making him. And this process of production is happening and Klein walks over and she says, so is that daddy train, right? And like, is that mommy train? And is mommy train going toward daddy train? And is dick train going toward mommy train? And that's the move where it's no longer, right? We're talking about, again, an appeal to mythology so as to explain what's happening, as opposed to um, something like the Dagon myth, where mythology is itself a process of production. That's, that's a great way to put it. Production. That's a really great way to put it, Jack. Thank that's you. a really great way to put it. Uh, because it is, it is, it is. Spot on, spot on. I don't, I don't have much to add. I don't have much to add. That's it's, great. It's tough because yeah, I'm you. trying not to pick on Young. 
<laughs> well, I mean, so this comes from, I mean, a lot of this comes from Freud's critique of Jung symbol because his critique of Jungian uh, uh, myth and tragedy is kind of where a lot of this shit ultimately flows from. Again, I'm going to go back to Holland. Um, uh, Freud's critique of Jungian interpretation is right, but only half right. Rather than referring symbolic representations to determinate objectities, the objective and objective social conditions, Freud refers them to the subjective and universal essence of desire as libido. This is the thing they talk about earlier, the the amazing moment where Freud went, hey, actually, no, we've got to talk about a universal desire underneath it. It's not these myths that move us around and are the sort of source of the force that aligns us, but instead this underlying desire that is libido. But then on top of that, Freud fucks up himself and decides to impose his own universal interpretation, the, the Oedipus complex on top of the workings of the unconscious. And this is D and G see their project as uh, like, I always joke with Deleuze, uh, everything he does is basically, Hey, i I love this philosopher. They just didn't go far enough. I love this guy. He just didn't go far enough. And with Freud, a lot of that and is their critique of Lacan and Freud and uh, all of that. Uh, D&G basically want to go, well, wait, forget the Oedipus complex. Why don't we take another step? It's um, The line goes, the ambiguity of psychoanalysis in relation to myth and tragedy has the following explanation. Psychoanalysis undoes them as objective representations and discovers them in the figures of subjective universal libido, but reanimates them, promotes them as subjective representations that extend the mythic and tragic contents, contents to infinity. In fact, dream and fantasy are to myth and tragedy as private property is to public property. It's fucking so good. Yeah. Does that help, Misha? Uh, yes, but I, I do think actually this part I already got a little bit, um, but it's, it, it is really helpful. So, good. Uh, and we're about to go into the Schreber case, which I think uh, again expands on what you're talking about with myth and tragedy and how they they play into production uh, as well. So, in fact, I actually probably should just dive into that. Uh, any last notes on this one before I do? The Schreber case again applies. Schreber's father invented and fabricated astonishing little machines. Sadistico paranoiac machines. For example, head straps with the metallic shank and leather bands for restrictive use on children for making them straighten up and behave. Just real quick, it's worth Googling. The shit's like straight out of a horror movie for children. Uh, these machines play no role whatever in the Freudian analysis. Perhaps it would have been more difficult to crush the entire social political content of Schreber's delirium if these desiring machines of the father had been taken into account, as well as their obvious participation in a pedagogical social machine in general. For the real question is this. Of course, the father acts on the child's unconscious, but does he act as a head of a family in an expressive familial transmission, or rather as the agent of a machine in a machinic information or communication? Schreber's desiring machines communicate with those of his father, but it is in this very way that they are, from early childhood, the libidinal investment of a social field. In this field, the father has a role only as an agent of production and anti-production. Freud, on the contrary, chooses the first path. 
It is not the father who indicates the action of machines, but just the opposite. Therefore, there is no longer even any reason for considering machines, whether as desiring machines or as social machines. In return, the father will be inflated with all the forces of myth and religion, and with a phylogen with phylogenesis, so as to ensure that the little familial representation has the appearance of being coextensive with the field of delirium. The production couple, the desiring machines in the social field, gives way to a representative couple of an entirely different nature, family myth. Once again, have you ever seen a child at play? How he already populates the technical social machines with his own desiring machines, oh, sexuality, while the father or mother remains in the background, from whom the child borrows parts and gears according to his need, and who are there as agents of transmission, reception, and interception, kindly agents of production, or suspicious agents of anti-production. Uh, to go over quickly Schreber's case, uh, JK, your mic's feeding back a little bit. Um, the the Schreber case, solar anus, famous early on, uh, and they talked lightly about uh, Schreber's father's machines, which, uh, if you haven't seen, <laughs> they're really awful to read the bottom. Um, Schreber, father and son, psychoanalytic quarterly, um, quite similar instruments of pedagogical torture to be found in the Contesse de Sigur, thus the good behavior belt with an iron plate for the back and an iron rod to hold the chin in place. That's, that's understating what this is. It's an iron rod in front with a point on the tip. So that way you don't lower your head without pricking your chin on it uh, to properly shape you via machine. Uh, there's a reason they're using that. It's literal father's machines uh, coming in and... Uh, why are they there? Oh, they're not some random representation, but they're to form someone uh, and Trevor's father as an agent of the social field is forming his son and forming all these children to be good little citizens and to fit into the needs of the socius. Uh, it's not that hardcore, Misha, although that is, uh, that is something else. What the fuck are you posting? That is, that is a thing. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll post a couple of pics uh, that aren't what Misha just posted um, just as a kind of example of a few of these. Um, that's the uh, one that held the child's head in place. It's a full body strap. So it's a, it goes around the uh, shoulders to hold in place as well. Uh, so there's shoulders and head that's attached to the chair to keep your back properly straight and set up, uh, which is its own thing. Um, and then, uh, there is this one, which utilizes, uh, rocks and things in order to properly straighten a child's legs. Apparently, uh, early on Trevor's father was fucking weird and did a lot of shit. Um, his posture devices are the most famous and they're gross and he's gross, but the underlying thing we keep sort of pushing and he, they keep pushing here is the the note that in the Freudian analysis of Schreber, and you can read it, the father's machines weren't part of this. What the father built, his relationship to his father, yes, but not the machines, not the way that he was formed and why or how it was set up. Uh, instead, it was all put back on Schreber himself, his relationship to his father, not the way his father molded him or built him or machines he put into him. 
And we wonder through all of this, uh, this paragraph, how the desiring machines of Schreber were formed, how they were built, and how this libidinal investment of the social field came through the father as an agent of production and anti-production, playing those roles. Uh, as a dad, if you ever get to go through it, uh, it's very unique. The ending here where they talk is 100% the reality of a child. They see your behaviors, mannerisms, words you use, how you act, what you do, and they want to copy you. But it's not just like mimicry. It's them taking the machines that you have, how you do things, what you do, what you produce, whatever it is. And the child borrows parts from here, parts from there in order to try to uh, fill their needs. And uh, again, it's a really great way of phrasing it. Uh, any questions, comments, please? Yes, I have a question. Please, please. Ex expanding curiosity. Yes. And that is because I read a short story that I really like called Phylogenesis. And this is the first time I actually see it used in another context. Um, and I was curious if you guys maybe know more about that. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't necessarily have a... Uh, we, we spent a little bit of time talking about this last time. I don't necessarily have anything to add to that. They don't use it very much here. They, they, I think it's used a few times in ATP to sort of grow that out. A lot more, I think, geology of morals and a few others. Yeah, that's what I was going to add. Is that's that's something that comes up more in ATP and like why we will run with as he goes into his fourfold plane of eminence is the five. Oh yeah. Uh, sorry, that that last sentence got cut off. I I I didn't hear the last sentence. Oh yeah, Guadri will run with this after ATP to develop like the four, what he calls the fourfold plane of eminence. So I have a part of that that fourfold, right? If you just think about it, like quadrants, one quadrant is phylum. Yeah, and and the 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 context here I think helps make sense where it's, uh, in, in return the father will be inflated with all the forces of myth and religion and with phylogenesis, uh, the the creation of things and all that, so as to ensure that the little familial representation has the appearance of being coextensive with the field of delirium. It's a great sentence describing the general relationship with the father, at least um, um, in, in their, their setup, uh, as, as, as Freud's talking about it again. Yeah, so it's kind of like um, uh, shining a light on someone's body to make a shadow about 10 times the size of the body. Yes, and then being like, Jesus Christ, they're a giant. That's kind of the irony they keep. They, well, if it is irony, I guess. But I always, I, I, I like when they do stuff like this, where they'll be like, right, so Freudian analysis does this. And then they'll say, but what does Freud do? And this is one of those times where they'll say, Freud, on the contrary, chooses the first path. And it's not the father who indicates the action of machines, but just the opposite. Thereafter, there is no longer even any reason for considering machines, whether it's desire machines or social machines. We'll continue. Why was mythic and tragic representation accorded such a senseless privilege? Why were expressive forms and a whole theater installed there, where there were fields, workshops, factories, units of production? The psychoanalyst parks his circus in the dumbfounded unconscious, a real P.T. Barnum in the fields and in the factory. That is what Miller and already Lawrence have to say against psychoanalysis. 
living are not believers. The seers do not believe in myth and tragedy. Quote, by retracing the paths to the earlier heroic life, you defeat the very element and quality of the heroic. For the hero never looks backwards, nor does he ever doubt his powers. Hamlet was undoubtedly a hero to himself, and for every Hamlet born, the only true course to pursue is the very course which Shakespeare describes. But the question, it seems to me, is this. Are we born Hamlets? Were you born Hamlet, or did you not rather create the type in yourself? Whether this be so or not, what seems infinitely more important is, why revert to myth? This ideational rubbish out of which our world has erected its cultural edifices is now, by a critical irony, being given its poetic immolation, its mythos, through a kind of writing which, because it is of the disease and therefore beyond, clears the ground for fresh superstructures. In my own mind, the thought of fresh superstructures is abhorrent, but this is merely the awareness of a process and not the process itself. Actually, in process, I believe with each line I write that I am scouring the womb, giving it the curette, as it were. Behind this process lies the idea not of edifice and superstructure, which is culture and hence false, but of continuous birth, renewal, life, life. In the myth, there is no life for us. Only the myth lives in the myth. This ability to produce the myth is born out of awareness, out of ever-increasing consciousness. That is why, speaking of the schizophrenic nature of our age, I said, until the process is completed, the belly of the world shall be the third eye. Now, Brother Ambrose, just what did I mean by that? What could I mean, except that from this intellectual world in which we are swimming, there must body forth a new world? This new world can only be bodied forth insofar as it is conceived. And to conceive, there must first be desire. Desire is instinctual and holy. It is only through desire that we bring about the immaculate conception. I'm not going to stop here because I was just reading a whole bunch of Miller and the rest is, the next paragraph is the explanation. We'll combine the two. Everything is said in these pages from Miller. Oedipus, or Hamlet, led to the point of autocritique. The expressive forms, myth and tragedy, denounced as conscious beliefs or illusions, nothing more than ideas, the necessity of a scouring of the unconscious, schizoanalysis as a curatage of the unconscious, the matrical fissure in opposition to the line of castration, the splendid affirmation of the orphan and producer unconscious. The exaltation of the process as a schizophrenic process of deterioration that must produce a new earth, and even the functioning of the desiring machines against tragedy, against the fatal drama of the personality, against the inevitable confusion between mask and actor. It is obvious that Miller's correspondent, Michael Frankel, does not understand. He talks like a psychoanalyst, or like a 19th century Hellenist. Yes, myth, tragedy, Oedipus, and Hamlet are good expressions, pregnant forms. They express a true permanent drama of desire and knowledge. Frankel calls to his aid all the commonplaces, Schopenhauer, and the Nietzsche of the birth of tragedy. He thinks Miller is unaware of these things, and never wonders for a second why Nietzsche himself broke with the birth of tragedy, why he stopped believing in tragic representation.
I know it was a lot. Uh, the Miller line is just worth getting through. And then the quick uh, summary of it, I think is worth talking through. Please, if anyone, uh, I know Jack, you're uh, last time around, you had a lot, but if, if anyone has stuff, please, now would be the time. I'll let uh, someone else kick it off. Um, but I just want to note that's from that passage you read, jumping to the footnotes, is from Henry Miller's Hamlet, 1939, volume one, pages 124 to 29. Or I guess we could try this. Um, I mean, Misa, since you're interested in myth and tragedy and that, you know, what do you make out of these two paragraphs? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm a bit blown away. So, uh, oof. <laughs> I'm not so sure, but there's just there's just one thing um, that is maybe not really related to the bigger point, but I was just really interested. Miller wrote in 1939, that is why speaking of the schizophrenic nature of our age, I said, until the process is completed, the belly of the world shall be the third eye. That's 1939. So one more time. That sentence uh, that I just read is from the... Hamlet yeah. text by Miller. Henry Miller, Hamlet, Puerto Rico, 1939. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. I know World War I mean, II hadn't even happened yet, right? Well, I mean, Miller, Miller point. is Miller. Miller's insane. Wonderful. Like just like a super next level. Yeah. So uh, maybe it's Miller and Bataille that I have to give more credit. Oh yeah. Um, uh, so what I make of it is. Um, well, I mean, I think when he when he talks about the 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 birth of Hamlet, he absolutely talks about. Um, uh, I think he makes a distinction there, or asks a question that alludes to the distinction of um, a, a a pre-conscious uh, type um, hero identity versus a uh, versus a a produced, non-questioning, um, yeah, desiring production that leads, that, that only has Hamlet as a, as a result. Um, instead of Hamlet being the beginning, I think he makes a distinction. Um, and I think he sees problems in uh, regressing to... Um, a, a pre-conscious view on a character like Hamlet, but yeah, sorry, I'm I'm also thinking out loud. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's it's good. it's the the just to sort of jump to the end of it because I'll I'll let you uh, think through what you're thinking. The the Nietzsche line here is to me the one of the more salient points around all of this because a lot of people will, uh, especially people who really really dig. Uh, myth, tragedy, storytelling, all of these things point to uh, Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy as, look, Nietzsche, because Nietzsche was good, had a lot of good shit, they they forget. And it's the line, uh, he broke with The Birth of Tragedy. People don't remember that literally he, like they were, it was a series of lectures he gave that were turned into a book. And later he ended up republishing it with an, a, a foreword where he literally calls it like a piece of shit book. And he's embarrassed by it. Like, just to say he he broke with it is putting it lightly. To read from attempted self criticism, which is the essay that that he ended up putting at the beginning of a new version of Birth of Tragedy. Um, Let me say again today, for me, it is an impossible book. I call it something poorly written, ponderous, painful, with fantastic and confused imagery. 
Here and there is so saccharine, it is effeminate, uneven in tempo, without any impulse for logical clarity, extremely self-confident, and thus dispensing with evidence, even distrustful of the relevance of evidence, like a book for the initiated, music for those baptized in music, those who are bound together from the start in secret and esoteric aesthetic experiences, a secret sign, this is one sentence, a secret sign recognized among artistic blood relations, an arrogant and rhapsodic book which right from the start hermetically sealed itself off from profane vulgarity of intelligentsia even more than from the people, but a book which, as its effect proved and continues to prove, must also understand enough of the issue to search out its fellow rhapsodists and tempt them to new secret paths of dancing grounds. It's one, one sentence. Um, so yeah, you could say he distanced himself from that book a little bit. <laughs> I just love that. I love the, he distanced, he broke, broke from that. It's like, no, he literally wrote an intro about how this book sucks. I was wrong and how none of this is true. So it's, 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 it's an incredibly powerful thing, but it's a, it's a hell of a thing. I think I need to uh, rethink my blog a little bit after that sentence. Who, who wrote that book? Uh, Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy? And uh, I mean, he was criticizing Miller. Oh, uh, Nietzsche. Uh, so um, Nietzsche wrote the Birth of Tragedy, which most people have. If they're into Nietzsche, it's one of the you know works everyone has. But not a lot of people have the second edition, which he like. I think is a later edition. He ended up putting out with his own uh, uh, his own foreword, which was called uh, an attempt at self criticism, uh, because he basically fell out with a lot of the people who were part of this. This was a very early, early Nietzsche stuff. And so um, he ended up retitling it, the birth of tragedy, Hellenism or, and pessimism, which is like a hell of a self-critical line about what the book is about. Um, but then on top of it, he wrote a new intro that basically just tears into the book as it is calling it immature, childish. But the biggest thing, and it's one of the things that's important here and why I want to phrase it. What Nietzsche even does and talks about inside of that as a critique of it is what they're talking about here, that the you we don't start from myth. He no longer believes myth is the start, whereas Birth of Tragedy, he talks about the tragic. He talks about the myth as being productive uh, in his own way. Um, and granted, again, it's early Nietzsche, and so maybe I'm drawing some lines that aren't fully there, but that's how I read it. Um, but then his own autocritique um, uh, I'll post a, a link to it. Um, it's pretty harsh on himself and it's kind of, yeah, fun to I've, watch. Seen, um, I've seen, I've uh, seen this topic a lot. Um, uh, and tragedy, but I was wondering who, who was the first person who started, uh, talking about the, this couple together. Like, do you think it's Nietzsche? Uh, oh, that's actually a great question. Um, I, I would guess it would be before Nietzsche. Um, but that's a great question. So let's see. Jung is who Freud was criticizing. The Jungian style of that. Uh, I don't know. That's actually, does anyone know where, where that may have begun? That's a great question. Yeah, I'm very interested to find out if you guys, uh, uh, can you write it down somewhere? Because I have to go. Uh, yeah. Thanks for the chat. Oh, no, for sure. Thanks for joining. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Do you have a thought on that, Misha, by the way, or Jack? Where might be, what might be the originary? 
Um, yes, but as a as a as a combination, I think is what they were asking about, like to to yeah, to call them together. Representational. Yeah how how does it become the thing that is? Hey, we can talk about myth and tragedy as this combination. The way Jung, Freud, Nietzsche is doing it. Who did that? Who made that first connection? That's actually a really interesting question. Uh, if I'm honest, I think Socrates and Plato and Aristotle already um, already talked about f- folklore tragedy theater um and and myth well maybe they didn't use the word myth but they talked about those things already as something representational uh, something that you should question as being real or not like i i remember reading a Socrates, Socrates di- dialogue about the like the deceptive nature of tragedy and and its yeah. uh, influence on politics and stuff like that. Yeah, but I mean, you could also argue because I I don't think they necessarily used myth and tragedy as two separate things because to them, like tragedy was part of their mythos. It was part of the like they didn't have a, a distinction between them as cleanly as we may describe it or as it was described by Jung and Freud. So you've got. You've got muthos and poesis at that time, right? Which is basically storytelling and poetry. And that's really critical because mm. poesis comes into right yes. fashioning, being the being what poetry is, a fashioning of, uh, of something, right? Usually story, verse, all these things together. But you've also got poesis connected with the word for power in Greece at that time. And this comes from Greg Salyer's argument. I'm leaning on him for a lot of this, but what happens with Plato and, and his big move with Socrates, right, is that Muthos, what the, what the pre-Socrates are doing, right, that has to fall away in favor of Logos. You have to make an argument. And um, I think you're thinking of, like, I think it's the Parmenides, or not the Parmenides. Mm. Um, it starts with a P. It's escaping me now. But where, where he's trying to go is you need... You need to use logos, you need to use reason, and in place of storytelling, you have to use allegory. Mm. Um, now, there's still some storytelling happening there, but the point is to shift toward um, dialectic, right, and reason, so as to have that methodology be what's driving, um, I mean, I would say discourse, but even, you know, what I would call myth, the story of a city, something like that, the memory, right? if we want to use kind of Deleuzian, Guattarian terms, they're going to move toward that being based on the rational. Um, still may be something unconscious there. I don't know that there is into representation because that seems to come more with like phenomenology. Um, but that's their big, that's the big break Plato's going to make is that we don't need storytelling and myth anymore. This is why we don't need poets. We can use logos which the pre-Socrates are interested in, but it's not like it is for Plato. Yeah, thank you for uh, clarifying it like that. Can I, while we're on the subject, can I just make a... Please, please, of course. uh, You um, don't have to ask. You ask every time. uh, You don't have to ask. I do ask every time. Yeah, yeah, sorry. (laughs) Okay. Um, I just just think it's so interesting that um, uh, pre-Socratic philosophy, like specifically Heraclitus, um, is that, that that we've come full circle <laughs> a little bit 
um, by having this 2000 year um, or a little bit longer, uh, uh, um, yeah, I don't know, party phase of, of the logos. Um, or I guess I should play, yeah, maybe it was more of a working phase in the party phase. Well, anyways, um, sort of the heralding of the logos and, and then later the, the, the rationality and then, uh, and then, and humanism and stuff. And then you read, you read Heraclitus from 3000 years ago and you're like, oh, oh, that's just basically what the Lays and Quartari are saying. <laughs> um, but just in a less like structured way, maybe. Um, but it's so funny that I, I find it really funny that then also, also someone like Plato um, uh, disregarded uh, the insights of someone like Heraclitus um, because it's difficult to put into a system or to put into logos form. To talk about flux is really difficult to put into, into structure. Well, and that's um, I, if I had to, I'd say um, there's a wonderful when I get the logic of sense readings up the series on the three types of philosophers, where he talks about the Platonists, the pre-Socratics, and the Stoics, and juxtaposes them against each other. Uh, it's a it's a hell of a read and a discussion very much about this because it's very fascinating how because the Stoic interpretation of logos is kind of what you're talking about. It's there's a lot of fun around a lot of those sort of older thoughts that are. Yeah, finally making it back around. Platonism is powerful shit, man. Well, powerful this shit. Is part, of, part of the reason I'd say we can come back to it is because... So I'd make two comments on, on, on the Platonic discussion here. Is one, Plato never negates what he's, what he's arguing against. And I think that's important for his dialectic. I think that's a shift that comes later, um, in, in my own opinion there. And the reason I think that is if you look at the Platonic dialogue, something like the Gorgias, or even like the use of allegory in the Republic, as opposed to Muthos, as opposed to storytelling, what Logos does is supplant, um, supplant that which it's dialectically related to. I don't think it actually gets rid of it. I think it actually like sort of supplants it and reforms it. And I think you see this in things like I mean, obviously, allegory, I think, is an easy one. But um, like when I think about the use of, um, I, think, I, I think it's the Phaedrus. He's arguing against writing through writing, right? He's using the medium to try and take down the medium. And this is why I don't think he can negate it. He can only get at a point of justice so as to qualify the medium as being useful only when it leads to the, the big three, right? The good, the beautiful, and the true. But in that sense, right, it's, and Deleuze makes the point about sorting, which I think is right. As for becoming, he does have becoming, right? But it's going to be that the becoming has to be mitigated by the forms. Because otherwise, we can't, he's concerned that we're, you know, the whole ontology falls apart without the forms. Because if things are changing, right, in the kind of Heracletian way, for Plato, they have to be like mitigated by the, like the Parmenidian take on the forms, right? Just to put the two together. So being has to basically supplant becoming in a sense. Still have becoming, it's just, you know, un under the mark of being for Plato. Oh man, that is, oh, that is so interesting, dude. 
also thank you for um thank you for refreshing um plato so so crisply and clearly uh, also in your previous comment it's really 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 nice well when i was younger i yeah. was a platonist so <laughs> unlike brutz i wasn't reading rand i was reading i wanted to be a good platonist and find the truth <laughs> and brooks found the united states of america yeah well it's uh, good white middle American cis male did what I can to support the Randian dream, I suppose. Ugh. Oh, that was gross to say. I apologize. Anyone had to hear that. Uh, no, but regardless. There's only one truth. The capitalism of Star Wars. <laughs> uh, right? Right off. Um, yeah, I, the the joke, and it's it's not a joke, but it's just a thing I've admitted before and just kind of try to because we have people who come on here who have no background in philosophy or have very strange backgrounds and i'm just like hey i started high school i was into ayn rand like wherever you start it's fine uh life is only about what we're exposed to and how we can grow so uh i'm a fairly <laughs> extreme version of that but who knows um all right i will continue to the next uh paragraph uh, which is about michelle Foucault. Michel Foucault has convincingly shown what break introduced the eruption of production into the world of representation. Production can be that of labor or that of desire. It can be social or desiring. It calls forth forces that no longer permit themselves to be contained in representation. And it calls forth flows and breaks that break through representation, traversing it through and through. Quote, an immense expansive shade extended beneath the level of representation. And this collapse or sinking of the classical world of representation is assigned a date by Foucault, the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. So it seems that the situation is far more complex than we made it out to be. <clears throat> Since psychoanalysis participates to the highest degree on this discovery of the units of production, which subjugate all possible representations rather than being subordinated to them just as Ricardo founds political or social economy by discovering quantitative labor as the principle of every representable value, Freud founds discover desiring economy by discovering the quantitative libido as the principle of every representation of the objects and aims of desire. Freud discovers the subjective nature or abstract essence of desire, just as Ricardo discovers the subjective nature or abstract essence of labor beyond all representations that would bind it to objects, to aims, or even to particular sources. Freud is thus the first to disengage desire itself, as Ricardo disengages labor itself. Thereby, the sphere of production that effectively eclipses representation <coughs> subjective abstract desire, like subjective abstract labor, is inseparable from a movement of deterritorialization that discovers the interplay of machines and their agents underneath all the specific determinations that still linked desire or labor to a given person, to a given object in the framework of representation. Desiring production and machines, psychic apparatuses and machines of desire, desiring machines and the assembling of an analytical machine. Analytical. A second paragraph, right? No, 
Okay. Where did that end? Where did that end? Framework representation. Really? Christ, yep. how, that good. I figured I'd ask me. now because that's you're about to get no, into no, a meaty paragraph. <laughs> Jesus, it's it's the, this PDF. Uh, all of chapter four, the paragraphs go on long. The problem is that there actually are some real long paragraphs, so I can never tell. Um, okay, uh, then let's go back a bit and discuss a handful of bits here. Where do we start? Go for it, Jack. JK, Misha, what questions you got? It's a fairly crisp paragraph, just kind of discussing Foucault's understanding of the movement we've made into uh, the time we kind of live in, when the break happened, as we started to understand desire, as representation started playing this this push. Uh, this, As they talk about it here, the work Freud did and Ricardo separating out uh, labor uh, as its own sort of element and desire as its own sort of element here. It's okay. There's a lot happening. Uh, which part is exploding that you may need help with that we can support? No, it's just, uh, it's just the, the cumulative uh, greatness of uh, everything we talked about today. And it's uh, I'm overflowing. Oh, good. That's, uh, this is kind of when it starts to happen. It happened to me this last time uh, we did the reading. Uh, where I actually started to piece things together and it was like, oh, that's what that section was. Oh, that's what that part. Oh, that, because they're starting to, again, um, they've been teaching us how to loom all of the threads together into the pieces we need to actually build the entire piece. So it's a, a lot of things crisscrossing. Is uh, anybody familiar with uh, Ricardo? Um, is his background, what is, uh, was he a... A Marxist, um, not, uh, not quite a Marxist. He's a he's like Smith. He's a he's one of the original capitalist economists that really t becomes the classical school of econ. Ricardo's one of his. He has a lot of big contributions. One of the main one is the labor theory of value, which Marx picks up right. Kind of picked well, up and ran with. Yeah, Ricardo <laughs> is the labor theory. I thought I completely attributed it to Marx. Well, no, so, Marx so, is picking up a good. <laughs> yeah, Mar Marx, Marx, uh, Marx. I I don't want to say an extreme statement. Marx took from basically, capital is not anti-capitalist. It is a collection of all the best writing, as interpreted through Marx about capital, and his reinterpretation of that in order to give us a form of how production operates within the way capitalism works. A lot of his shit comes from a lot of other actual capitalists who get cited by major real economists, even to this day. Um, it's one of those things like they hate Marx because all he did was say, Oh, so you believe in these six things? And everyone goes, yes. And he goes, well, do you see how uh, when these things interact, that's a problem. And they're like, uh, you're a, you're a communist Bye. Like, that's kind of what Marx did. Most of the underlying theories come from a few others. But David Ricardo was, like, massive. Um, didn't he also do uh, The Law of Diminishing Returns? Was, like, his, in, he came up with that. Like, of all the fucking, like, the dude was crazy. Did a whole bunch of shit. I, I think it's Diminishing Returns. There's, like, there's something Smith did that was really similar. But I think Diminishing Returns was Ricardo. I'm Googling. 
Oh yeah, no, okay. So Jesus Christ. Okay, so more than I thought. Uh economic theory of comparative advantage. Yep. Um uh labor theory yeah, of value. Smith is absolute. That's right. Theory of rent. Uh Ricardian equivalence and uh specifically the law of diminishing marginal returns. So yeah, he did a lot. Jesus intense actually the theory of rents shows that benefits of a rise in grain prices will tend to accrue to the owners of lands in the form of rents paid by tenant farmers like fuck of course but hey someone had to come up with it and again uh did marx pull from that at all more than maybe a little bit that's right but it's i mean that welcome to how theory works like nothing's original. We're all building and taking parts of other people's machines. Ah, yeah, and that's lovely as well. Uh, yeah, yep. just just fun to see. Um, yeah, to learn something. I I need to quit for today because it's it's too much. <laughs> let's. I think actually now is not a terrible place for us to take a break. Uh, so let's take a few moments and uh, we'll do. How about we discuss only to this point? Is there anything top of mind, JK, Misha, Jack? And then we can end because it's the holidays. Take a few days. It's not a problem. We're not meeting next week. So you can have your mind blown for two whole straight weeks, Misha. <laughs> uh, but it's also, it's also the Plato, uh, just the Plato information that, um, that Jack, uh, just, you know, whipped out. That uh, it's just uh, rearranging and- a lot of things in my brain. And again, you know, I, I mean, I'm getting that from one going back to reading too much Plato in, in my time, but also I, I have to thank like Greg Salyer for that because that some of his explanations have been very helpful. Yeah, I just want to say um, that I think Miller's quote, "Desire is instinctual. It is only through desire that we bring about immaculate conception." Um, I think it's so interesting. And at the same time, why immaculate conception in this case? Why not, um, why not seed conception? And also why holy and not instinctual? I mean, I don't, I don't really expect clear answers to it, but I was just wondering why, why the association is holy. And I, I haven't read the Miller's Hamlet, but just looking at it in this context, it looks like the point he's trying to get at is right. So it's not, and this might be a meta-literary point, but it's not like, it's not like Hamlet is the condition of that which is going to be produced and then you can just call it Hamlet, right? He's taking the pains to say that um, locating Hamlet and locating my own like disgust at it, or the narrator's disgust at it, is still to get out at how it appears to you, right, at the conscious level. Right, so you need consciousness to do some of these things to, to get at the at the Hamlet here. But when he goes to like the point about the immaculate conception, right, it looks like he's trying to get at. At what Hamlet, at what the Hamlet would be obfuscating, right, which is, here desire, so as to say that it's not necessarily like a rational process, by which we try to be Hamlet, or by which we appeal to Hamlet. It's to say that that which we are is conceived, is um, 
it's not really birthed per se, it gets at what will be birthed, right? And that which we uh, are becoming, if you like, um, relies on a conception, on, on a fertilizing watery, on a process of production. So the, the holy and the instinctual part, I think, is what he's getting at is like, it's not like the myth of Hamlet is the sacrosanct, right? That's not the sacred. What's sacred for Miller here is going to be desire because desire is what brings about um, a conception, a conceiving, um, consummation, consumption, if you like, a consummation of, of what will become, what will be, what can be more so. Yeah, it's just that um, I find uh, the concept of immaculate conception to be uh, specifically an example of um, a restricted desire. I think I think that's exactly why he's doing it, though, is he's kind of making fun of it, right? There's a humor to it, which is like, you know, you say these things are, are the sacrosanct and that, right? Why re- but why revert to myth? Right. Instead of going that way, there's something about the immaculate conception taken in this manner that um, the easy way to explain is it's kind of a simulacra, right? It's forcing um, the being of the immaculate conception to be reconsidered under a becoming. Instead of um, the immaculate conception being a a prophecy or or a condition. For holiness to exist. The, um, the idea that the, um, of producing a new myth that requires desire to produce a, a new myth, a negative conception, is he's referring to the uh, that line before that that says that the ability, this ability to produce the myth is born out of awareness, out of ev- ever increasing consciousness. And then mentions the refers to the belly of the world shall be the third eye. And then, so it has something to do with uh, producing a, a new myth, right? Or ability to create a new myth. But it requires the desire to, to uh, bring about this immaculate conception. I took that to be like, there's the, because he says in, in the myth, there is no life for us. Only the myth lives in the myth. The ability to produce the myth is born out of awareness, out of ever-increasing consciousness. So I, I think what he's moving there is to say, right, like he's, I mean, the easy way to say is he's kind of attacking like a phenomenological engagement with, with myth, right, which is more or less kind of what Nietzsche is doing in Birth of Tragedy through the Apollinean. Um, so the move there is that you can do that, right? You can talk about myth at this conscious level, and we can talk about how we we try to fit into myth intentionally um, or unintentionally, perhaps. But that's not the process of writing that Miller is talking about, right? Um, where he says this idea, ideational rubbish out of which our world is erected, its cultural edifice, is now is by, is now by a critical irony being given its poetic emulations, mythos, through a kind of writing uh, which, because it is of the disease and therefore beyond, clears the ground for fresh superstructures, which he goes on to critique. But he differentiates this from the process of writing he's doing, which is this kind of point about the stomach, 
not so much like it's all feeling based, but that there's something, I mean, he'll say instinctual later, right? But there's something unconscious happening that can't be explained through myth because he's not trying to do this process of writing per se. There's something happening that's um, that's auto-productive. Is it the idea that in order to free yourself from uh, these, uh, these myths, uh, that you have to uh, somehow, you know, rely on desire, right, to create your own myth, to create a new myth? I don't know if he's trying to create a new myth here. Um, I have I, I haven't read this text, but just going back through this, I think he's getting at the process. I think he's getting at the distinction between the already written Hamlet being that which we want to say writing strives to be, as opposed to kind of the inverse, which is that that which is producing the writing made Hamlet possible once, but it's also making all sorts of other things possible. So that writing doesn't have to try to be Hamlet. Writing is itself trying to do things. And that any myth in a representational sense will try to latch on to those things, right? Which we see, you know, I mean, nowadays we do it through movies, right? We're like, Luke Skywalker becomes the representation. He's talking about bringing about the new world, right? Conceiving a new world. But in order to do that, you have to rely on desire. Mm -hmm. right? And this, this yeah. uh, desire is for this new, you know, the birth of something new. Which could be a could be something that's um, that's not that's not a myth, or is is it a uh, is it really you know isn't uh, this kind of creativity or conception a kind of an a another myth? But it's a process of maybe creating the myth. That's that's maybe what he's alluding to. An easy way to say it's like process versus product, right? Right. So it's not that he's trying to produce a myth. It's that there's a process of writing happening right. that can be juxtaposed with a myth so as to not take the myth as that which the writing is trying to be. Exactly right. Which is so, why you can get this. Clearly, this is not Hamlet, right? This isn't what Shakespeare wrote. <laughs> Go ahead. Right. You have to depend on that desire uh, you know, of production, right, to, to do it, right? Yeah, I mean later on they'll say this is finding the new finding the earth the new earth right. When when uh, Miller says here desire is spiritual and holy, but also when Miller and Guattari talk about desire, I always wonder or I find it difficult to um, to um, not associate it with subjective desire, or I mean the association is fine I guess more like to not confuse it with subjective desire because but then my question is and this is more of an open question uh to like how does a body chat like how does a body channel desire and instinctually but not subjectively um and i'll just give an example why why i see a problem there because Think also is completely uh, uh, in this molar molecular circle. Like instinct is part of that circle of that of that interaction between um, 
like internalized representations and stuff like instinctually you might do things that uh, are that follow um produced and internalized representations but then how do you sort of separate the subject from the um pre-subject instinctive desire say that one more time for me yeah it was a bit chaotic um basically you have pre-subjective pre, pre desire what Deleuze and Guattari talk about when they when they say desiring machine like it doesn't require a subject the subject is produced right sorry my brain's not working super well at this point <laughs> yeah same <laughs> um we're going back a bit. Okay, okay. I know what you're talking about. All right, let's try one yeah. more time. I promise this time my brain will do something. Yeah, it's just that you, you have this, this pre-subjective pre desire or a, a desire, desiring machines that doesn't require, require a subject but rather produces a subject or these desiring machines. And also when um, Miller here talks about desire being instinctual, I, 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 I think, okay, yeah, that is, that is pre-subjective um, uh, desire. Um, real quick, just as one edge, I'm always hesitant to say that desire machines produce a subject. I would say oh. that they, uh, a subject is produced by desiring machines. There's a just because the the directive or the the prescriptive direction right, of right, that. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, a subject is a byproduct of the of the right, right, right. machines firing yeah. off. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I also feel like when they, when when Miller here says desire is instinctual, I feel like that's a similar like a similar line of thinking. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I struggle maybe, uh, in my uh, own production, like when I, when I am aware of my production, um, how to not, uh, like I feel forced to relate that to, 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 to my subject. And I wonder if I am able as a subject to use instinct at all, um, to, in a, in a way that is not. Uh, restricted by all my uh, internalized representations. Um. Is Deleuze talking about the subject as a, as a kind of a a private uh, you know uh, thing that um, that he critiques uh, in in the uh, uh, capitalist uh, socius? I, I I don't think I don't think subject is unique to the capitalist socius. It's about how the subject is produced. Uh, I to me, okay, my understanding and the way I interpret it is that the subject is emergent out of the interactions of desiring machines that are various complexities. That there is no centered subject where everything sort of flows into a singular point and makes an ego that is Brooks that sees the world and then from there everything flows out but instead that across all of these complex interactions that are desiring machines, there is an emergent subject that believes it exists in retrospect and is able to look back on what the desiring machines have done, put up and placed and said, oh, that's me, that's what that is. Okay, cool, that's happiness, that's hunger, that's these things, I get to do that, but only after the fact of experiencing it. I don't get to do that during experience, I don't get to do that any other time, it's, it's that set up. Um, as, as we play sort of with that and how representations play, how myth and all of that, we're talking about uh, social elements, representations that play inwardly, 
just before the subject is created and basically take hold of that emergent process. They insert themselves in there and they do things that make desire, which just flows, push into different places or uh, fill different crevices. A representation shows up. And in that moment, I'm no longer uh, uh, directly connected or desire machines are not directly connected, but instead I'm cognitively thinking through what a thing needs to be or ought to be. And desire is being given places to fill rather than desire creating the elements that emergently produce me. Uh, by creating those buckets for desire, desire falls in them like traps, like animals. Uh, if you've ever needed to catch frogs, it's an old thing. You just literally dig a trench and make it deep enough, put a bucket in it and uh, put a placard on one side. They'll jump in because they're dumb. It happens all the time. Desire, same thing. Desire just goes and then falls into the representational traps that are placed sort of before it and fills that. But this causes neurotic behavior, paranoiac behavior, schizophrenic behavior, all sorts of disconnections from uh, things rather than just allowing the free connection of stuff. Myth, tragedy, all of those. If they're a thing that we connect to and produce, there's, art is wonderful. There's nothing negative about art. There's doors art. I adore art. Adore, art makes us feel it's it's amazing. It's a hyper complex set of interactions, but art can also do the opposite, where it tells us how to feel, or we're told how to feel about it, or what it means about us when we feel a certain way. And when we, when we, sorry, go ahead. I was just saying. I'm going to say later in this chapter, he's going to talk about uh, how the uh, how the socius privatizes the subject in some way. By this, uh, by the idea of private property, and uh, that makes the subject, yeah, maybe the desire, the subject, and and the in desire, become mm. a kind of private, uh, something more private than you know, it was before. Mm. But uh, you know, I, yeah, it's it's going to be a couple of more paragraphs later on where he mentions that maybe we could talk about it. Yeah. No, no, he, he mentioned it and talked through it a little bit earlier where he said the line, um, crap, it's a little bit later. I, I was, I was skipping ahead. Ignore me. Um, but the, the distinction of private property, public property, and the way that these things play is very important to this because again, it creates elements that are not mine or are mine, or I'm allowed to connect or not allowed. It, it changes my relations to them and also creates them as separate sort of representations on their own this hardens things and the meaning of things it it again when i deal with them it's no longer those elements teaching me or or me creating those elements or informing them or having my desire flow through them instead they're telling my desire how to flow instead they're giving me representations that desire is doing its best to connect to uh, it's doing its damnedest because it wants to connect repeatedly uh, again, the the forces of anti-production are the sort of freeing element here. Desire wants to connect to the thing that's consistently pleasurable and works uh, over and over and over, but there's elements of anti-production, distraction, connections, these other things that allow us to have secondary connections. Desire wants the safe thing. It's um, it someone, one of my favorite uh, movie reviewers described current film as the Chris Farley show uh, in film form. 
and it's uh, Chris Farley show. If you never saw it, it was Chris Farley entered interviewing people and just asking them about stuff they'd been in. And it was amazing. It was interviewing Paul McCartney. He's like, Hey, do you remember when you were in the Beatles? That was awesome. That's American culture. Um, and so it's that kind of thing. We kind of are set to that's a death drive, however you want to put it. But we, we, this, this pain to repetition, we can break. And, uh, that break is positive. Yeah. I think on page uh, 303, that second paragraph there is where he mentions that, um, the mark summarizes the entire matter by saying that the subjective abstract essence is discovered by capitalism only to be put in chains all over again, to be subjugated and alienated. And then at the bottom of that paragraph, he mentions this, uh, it, it merely performs a vast conversion of this world by attributing to it the new form of an infinite subjective representation. Hmm. That's, that's a couple of pages ahead of us. Huh? But we, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. But it's the, the infinite, uh, he also brought up a little bit earlier um, as well. And this play towards the infinite as we move in towards uh, how representation plays, how it sets up. Um, uh, we can also go a little bit back as well, uh, where he does the same thing. He's going to use the term subjective abstract labor and subjective abstract libido. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, we, yeah, we, it's a couple of paragraphs ahead of us. Love it. Um, um, if I can come back to my question for a second. Sure. Um, I, it's, I think why I'm so bothered by, or why I'm so preoccupied is because it's related to my production of art, right? Mm -hmm. um, is that, uh, I don't want to make the mistake to confuse my intuition in producing my images and, and, and sounds and texts. I don't want to mistake that intuition with a desiring machine's intuitive connection to other desiring machines or other things. But I also think it is the closest thing that I can get to that to use sort of intuit my intuition in some kind of way. But the problem of intuition is, of course, that subjective intuition is what you described earlier, is, is so strongly mediated. Um, is, 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 I feel like subjective intuition are these channels, right, that lead desire to a very specific place that uh, you might not fully maybe you're not fully aware of it yourself, what those channels are exactly are, but the big chance that those channels are very common uh, 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 social representations. How can you channel? Um, uh, how can you let desire free more, uh, flow more freely in subjective intuition? So let's talk about art creation because this is a thing that... Uh, it's a big deal to me as well, Misha. Um, I, to me, uh, and I, it's one of the things that drew me to the lose originally. It's probably the thing that has kept me here so very, very strongly is the way he handles how art is uh, processed, I suppose would be the way to put it. Uh, Francis Bacon, Logic of Sensation, 
please read. It's phenomenal. There's a bunch of secondary texts I'm happy to send you. Um, but to me, what we're doing when we create art is we're creating a playground for desire, creating a playground for desiring machines, places for them to connect, disconnect, to do what they're going to do uh, without the uh, enforced regime that capitalist socialist forces on us or social machines have set up uh, the instant imminent feeling you get from a real piece of art i don't care what type it is is one of uh confused wonder mixed with emotion and a whole bunch of things like there's a lot of emotions that go with that and there's a lot of directions but the disengaging nature when your body and your desiring machines are connecting across all of it. The job of an artist is to give a playground. And I would argue that Deleuze and what is philosophy makes the same argument and says the same thing for philosophers. The job of philosophers is to create concepts, the same thing, the, this effectively the same element. It's to push new directions, new connections, new elements, new things for desiring machines. I, I call it the playground. Because to me, that's where it's most interesting, where people get to uh, have connections they didn't have before in this. They don't know what to do with. They don't know how to feel about. Um, and I've had a, a, a ton of experiences. I'm very fortunate. Um, a concept that invites to be thrown through. When, yeah, it's, it's, it's unexpected. It's not a, it's not even unexpected. It touches desiring machines directly almost it plays with sensation as a thing and this to me is where uh as we talk about what our instinctual sort of side is as we're creating or what we think about anything or we spend too much time overthinking which is the opposite direction the challenge for an artist is properly creating a place where the desiring machines are able to play that's to me the the way I I sort of read it and see it. I don't know if that's an answer, but that's mine. That's my answer. Can you repeat that le uh, the last two sentences? The point of an artist is to, uh, when you create, and this is for any type of art, uh, is to create a playground for desiring machines, places that new things for them to connect to or disconnect from or connect to that they aren't they don't understand whether they're allowed to or not, that that doesn't even matter to them. Francis Bacon's paintings, as you read Logic of Sensation, are a really phenomenal example of this. They all are sort of the thing they are. I don't know how else to explain it, but they're not. They're not the thing they are. But like if I were to say, oh, that's a painting of an ocean and a boat, you go, oh, fuck, yeah, that, okay, that's what that is. But then it's it's really not. There is an, uh, there is a, an emotion that sort of, coincides with that with a lot of art uh, there's a wonderful book called tintoretto's difference that utilizes delusian art theory to go through the history of art it's a fucking hard read but it's very good at breaking down uh, what i would say is more traditional art history through the same lens and our ability for the desiring machines to connect and produce allows us to experience the emotional affect which is the byproduct of the process and that's what an artist does. That's your job is to intuitively play with the space where 
we are at that edge where things are connecting in ways that people may not have realized it before and aren't playing with representation directly, but instead desiring machines are connecting and doing what they're doing. Freely. It's just, and, 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 and that sounds great. And I completely agree with that and it's beautiful, but it's just, uh, you know, I could, I, um, a militarized Christian man will intuitively want to create an art piece that will, you know, tell people about the wonders of uh, Christian military. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, 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 and the, the, that's where the problem for intuition is for me or something. And I just Why? don't know. Why? Well, maybe, yeah, maybe it's not a problem. Maybe it's, it's not. Uh, let me, I, I will put it to you a different way. It's just that um, I don't want to pretend I'm, I'm making a free pr playground, but I do want to. I can uh, jump and provide please, a go for it, turn, do it. Do it. Remember, um, there's like the, the pre-conscious as well. And you can have, uh, you know, new lines of flight or, uh, or what's the word? Sorry, I'm driving home, uh, so I'm not quite all the way there. But remember how they, they distinguish between like kind of revolutionary desire and reactionary like intent or the reactionary pre-conscious? You can still want to like make new connections with uh, intuition and then kind of arrive at a reactionary result. I, I would add to that, do not dismiss your own current place as a subject. Uh, a Christian man uh, may create, and it will do so, be something that extols the value of Christianity, sure. But as they are playing for something new, they can do something as varied as which are absolutely, these are Christian texts, uh, the lion, the witch in the wardrobe or Lord of the Rings. Now, how do we connect to either of those pieces? They're different. They're fantasy. They put us in a different space. I can name hundreds of very wonderful Christian pieces that are absolutely not directly that, and actually not directly even subversive, but sort of unique because the contingent events and connections that enabled them to be made well, the person who made them not have may not have fully understood why that was interesting was. I wouldn't discount your own contingent realities, where your desiring machines are at, and your own intuition, because that's not something I have. Your connections and what you make when my desiring machines connect to it is going to necessarily be unique. You can't spend time worrying about, well, will Brooks like this? Will Tiernan like this? Will Jack put something out there? get things out there that to you is an interesting set of two connections because as you do, as Jeremy was talking, like a, a line of fight, the transversal element between two parallel series, as you connect a thing, I then get to experience that connection. And I didn't know that before, but now that connection and that piece of art is its own series that I'm now going to juxtapose against another. And when I take that and I draw a line of flight, now we have two series that Jack sees, but he sees it as a single piece of art. Now a single series all of the stuff we've done is slowly collapsing into a single series for every subsequent person. But every time that happens, something new is formed. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a rhizome. Yes, exactly. Okay. I, yeah, my head is really about to... I'm going to go I know, we're a lot. We're a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, but this is so great. So great. So, so good. Thank you so much. I, uh, I will take a bathroom break. Uh, I think we're all going to uh, slowly end up here. Um, Jack, did you have any last notes? Because I know you've been trying to talk while me and Tiernan were chatting. 
No, I thought you guys were doing a phenomenal job. I, I was very careful not to interrupt. Just to add one thing um, to that conversation, I, I appreciate the pre-conscious um, and the unconscious distinction you're making there, uh, Tiernan. And, and to add to that, right, and I think this is part of what you're getting at, Brutz, as well, um, just because there's a structure involved doesn't mean it's the whole of the productive process, right? So if there is a you know a Christian structure involved or something like that, that doesn't mean that that's necessarily everything that's going on in the process of that piece being created, right? Because the artist, I I actually think Wilde and his um this preface to Dorian Gray gets it a lot of this kind of nicely with like the problems of going beneath the surface and that, but. There's a ton of stuff that you just simply, you can't be directly responsible for, or your intent can't be directly responsible for, right? So when you're making a piece in terms of just like unconscious production, the way things are connecting the product, the, the functions they're going to perform and the intensities that they take on, you can't just say that that's, like you can't produce that just by using Christianity wholesale, right? The pieces like you're like you're saying with with Narnia and with Tolkien, those pieces take on their own forms of production because they're produced in that manner. Well I would even I would even go so far <clears throat> as saying we're also talking about being from the very privileged position of a subject who who gets to pretend it's alive and a real thing. None of us are. So in the same way that we, it would be silly if my left arm were to go, well, you know, on my own, I really can't create any art. I really need a brain. My brain goes, well, I can't really draw. I guess I don't get to do art because nothing I do will be interesting. And then we put the collection together. We go, oh, I can do art but maybe I can't because I don't have this other piece. I guarantee you if there was a subjectivity of an art collective that actually existed, it'd be sitting there going, I, I just, I don't know. You know my, my collective, we have all the people underneath me. We have a very specific way of thinking about things. I guess what we're going to do is, you know, not really playing with intuition. And then that art collective, whatever they made and the other groups they join as a nation. Oh, I don't know if we're like, this can go on forever. There's an infinite regress. There is no manifestation of any ego. There's no you. Uh, you happen to be in a privileged position as an emergent piece of the process, looking back on everything you've experienced. But when you go out and you make art, the realities is you're not making it. The experiences are, the desiring machines are. And if you wouldn't allow that to be the thing that plays, allow representations, allow these things. Sure, it's your contingent piece, but you're playing with instinct as much as literally anything can. There's no lower layer. It's um, Wei 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 has one of my favorite lines, and it's the old Taoist saying that most people come to is, um, the mistake most people make is that they're already enlightened, they just don't know it yet. And it's a, it's a running joke kind of in the Zen community. It's intended to be like a Cohen, but the idea is spot on. It's, we are not connected because we believe we aren't connected. If we just stopped thinking about that, we'd be cool. All of this kind of boils down not too far from that same general sentiment. Thank you for today. Bye-bye. That was a door slam on the way out. Did you hear that? He's like, I can't take any more. My bladder's bursting. I'm done. <laughs>